church. Well, if you have your Bible with you, would you, or you have your app, go ahead and open that up. We're going to be in the book of Hosea this morning, the book of Hosea. We're beginning a new series called Not Safe for Church. And you may think, like, what a strange name. Thank you. Um, Not Safe for Church because the book of Hosea gives us a unique insight into something about the heart of God that I think we don't talk about enough in church. And I think it exposes something in us in the ways that we are in this covenant relationship with God, and we're called to be the people of God, and we kind of put on this facade as we gather together on Sunday mornings, and we almost think it's not okay to talk about still being broken, still being renewed into the image of Christ. And and the book of Hosea brings what seems like is something not safe to talk about in church, and it says church is exactly the place we should be talking about those things because the gospel's big enough to meet all of those needs. But before we dive into the word this morning, let me just say happy anniversary, baby girl. 24 years ago, Stephanie said yes, and uh, I am so grateful uh, for our years together. Uh, We're going to celebrate our anniversary like most couples do. We're hosting our leadership team community group in our home tonight. Uh, So we're going to play cards Christians like, which ought to be a lot of fun with the leadership team of the church. um, But don't worry, we're going to play hooky from responsibilities tomorrow when, uh, when we go to Magic Kingdom together and celebrate with Mickey Mouse. She'll have Dole Whip, I'll have the, uh, the Orange Bird, because that's the couple we are. All right, have you ever wanted to know what someone was thinking? I mean, some people don't hide it well. Like, I have two E's at the end of my last name, J-E-S-S-E-E. And so, like, I don't hide it well when sometimes I'm thinking something, because I'll just blurt it out like that, right? But maybe there are other people... Perfect. Way to go. You guys are on it. You know, sometimes you're you're talking to somebody and you just think like, I wonder what they're thinking about what I'm saying. And then sometimes they'll tell you and you're like, I wish I hadn't wondered that. Maybe you've you've been in conversations before where somebody has this, this, this face that just gives everything away that they're thinking, and then there's other times where you're talking to people and there's this stoicism, this stone face. A lot of times in the world we'll refer to that as somebody's poker face, where it's like they're not trying to give away any tell what's going on inside their head, let alone what's going on inside their heart. And maybe you've had that thought about God. Sometimes I wonder what God is thinking. Now this this can be an easy question at at most when we're watching the news at night and we see the evil and the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world around us. We say, I wonder what God is thinking about this. I, I wonder in this moment what's going on in his head or in his heart. Maybe maybe you are walking through something and, and you wonder, I wonder what God thinks about me. And all of a sudden, his thoughts about you get crowded, crowded out with your thoughts about yourself. And the more distant he becomes. Maybe you've had this kind of a, a season in your life where you say, well, this is kind of a dry season in my relationship with God. This is a season where I seem to be calling out and he doesn't seem to be answering. And so there, there are these questions that begin to kind of riddle our minds of, is he still there? Maybe you're going through something even more devastating than a dry season. And it just feels like a dead season in your faith. It's not on life support. You hear the tone of the flat line of your faith. Have you ever wondered what God is thinking? Hosea tells us what he thinks about us as his people. And it reveals something about the heart of God that is passionate for you and me. It pursues you and me. 
no matter the, the way that we would describe our relationship with Him, He has never altered, He has never faltered in His thoughts and His passion for you. His faithfulness endures. I do think back to our wedding day at different times, and I think about the, the, one of the first songs that was played before our, our ceremony officially began, and, and I remember Doug Bailey singing that day, and, and my uh, uncle Daryl playing the piano so beautifully. That the song was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And that's been a theme throughout our marriage, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And, and you know what's wonderful about that theme of the faithfulness of God is, it's never changed. It's always been faithful to the fullness. And I don't think that's because of who I am. It's because of who He is. Because there have been moments where my faithfulness toward God have faltered. My faith in Him have been shaken by the circumstances I've been walking through in life. And as we approach the book of Hosea, I think it's important for us to realize Hosea as a book in the Bible was written to a people at a time and a place in history where God wanted to shake them loose from an apathy in their faith. And more than that, where they had become spiritually adulterous people. And that's not a phrase we use a ton these days. And I don't throw it around lightly. There are a few other phrases we're going to read this morning that we don't throw around lightly. But it helps us to understand the weight of his passion for his people. Because Hosea doesn't just exist for the northern kingdom of Israel. It exists for you and for me today. So with that in mind, let's begin in Hosea 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Let's just pause there for a moment. We begin to realize that God is speaking to Hosea. He is, he is revealing something to Hosea as a prophet and what is going to be kind of the seminal part of his ministry to the people that God has called him to. He has a particular message that he wants to deliver to his people. And he says, Hosea, you are the person who is going to be the one who delivers this message to my people. Now, the kingdom of Israel is in decline. Some 600 or so years before this, they had taken on the, the role of saying, give us a king. And so we begin to kind of plot this on the, the map of history. And we realize this is God intervening at a very specific time and place in history. And he's using a very real people to, to reveal something about who he is. And he's coming to his kingdom and he's saying 600 years into the, the reign after the people have said, give us a king, the kingdom is falling apart. One commentator that I read actually said it this way, the nation of Israel is circling the drain of history. It's about to be completely obliterated, abolished, wiped off of the map as if it doesn't exist anymore. And Hosea is listening to the word of the Lord. In the midst of this decline, there's a split that happens in the kingdom. And so we have a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And where we're at in history is not only 600 years from the time that the people of Israel have called out for a king, but they are now 750 years away from the coming of Jesus Christ. Just to give us some idea of where they're at. In other words... The things of God can seem very distant to them, and they've become very routine. And you may think, well, how do you get all that from just reading these, these kings' names? What these kings' names exist for is to help us understand where it is in the timeline of history that Hosea is ministering to the people of God. Maybe you and I can feel that way today. The cross, uh, some 2,000 years ago, the cross seems so far away and it, and it can almost seem like a distant memory. And I know that we bring it up in church all the time, but what difference is that supposed to make on a, on a Tuesday afternoon when I'm sitting in that meeting I don't want to be a part of? What difference does that make in that moment? The things of God can seem very distant from us too. We have no idea when it is that He'll return. We just know that He is returning. 
We know that there's a day where a trump will sound and the skies will part and we will be with him for eternity. But for right now, it seems a little boring when it comes to our faith if we're being perfectly honest. Can I say that? That's why I called it not safe for church. Can we just say the things that some of us think at different times and let the scriptures minister to us? Sometimes I just get tired of waiting I think about it like one of my children. I don't want to name names, but when Alec was in high school, it was very dangerous if he got bored in class. He was the one that I was always like, please, Lord, keep him occupied in his mind so it doesn't wander to other things. And yet, I recognize that in him because in my own faith, I can be that way at times. I'm a little bored with this. What can I cling to today? I love what we were hearing in worship this morning through the prophetic ministry. When it talks about this anchor that we have for our soul, when we realize that passage from from Hebrews, and as we're singing this refrain, you never let go of me. But how often in my own heart or in my own mind or tragically in my own actions have I let go of the things of God and tried to cling to the things of the world? That's verse 1. See, the people were experiencing this normal life, just like you and I. But there was this, in the midst of this spiritual kind of lack, there was a, a worldly prosperity. There were new technologies of the day. Where the people of God were, there were new technologies that made life easier. There were new technologies that that made things just go better for people. And Hosea's message to the people of God is focused on their covenantal relationship with God. You know, on our anniversary, I, I am reminded of the significance of the covenant of marriage. It is a covenant. It's a mutual but exclusive relationship with another. I have a, an exclusive relationship with Stephanie. And God is saying, in my covenant with my people, I have an exclusive relationship with them. And in, in our relationship with God and our covenant with Him, there are blessings and there are curses that come along with that. There are blessings that from abiding within that covenant, and then there are curses for when those moments where we break that covenant. And, and, and so we kind of live in this place where we realize there is a significance to this, but we wonder at times what difference it should make in our life. There's something else going on in the culture of the day. Not only is there a cultural and a tech, technological and advancement of, of history, convenience that's coming out and a prosperity that is is coming to the people, there are idols everywhere. There are all kinds of lowercase g gods all over the place. This is actually known as religious syncretism. And what they're trying to do is, is like, hey, create your own god. Take all of these little gods and just put them together for what works best for you. And you may think, well, I'm not sure I see that in our day, but I think as we, as we go throughout our passage today, we'll realize that exists in the world that we are in today as well, more than that exists within our own hearts as they just produce idol after idol. Now, Hosea's ministry prophetically is going to last about 40 years, and these first three chapters really capture what is most often known about the book of Hosea. It's kind of his life's message prophetically. It's the illustration through his life that will be the message to the people of God. And we read that together this morning in Hosea 1, beginning in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Beablam, and he and she conceived and bore him a son. 
Now, there's a word from the Lord in verse 1, and then there's a command from him in verse 2. And notice what Hosea's posture is before the Lord. It is one of listening and obeying. How many of us have that same posture toward the Lord in our life today? Listening and obeying. I'm not talking about not having any doubts. I'm not talking about wondering what's going on because I think if we kind of read into Hosea's story a little bit, I can come up with ways that I'm sure that Hosea had some questions for the Lord. Those aren't necessarily captured for us right here in today's passage. But we, we can imagine that there were moments, for example, go and take a wife of whoredom. Now, I want to be careful here. I didn't slap a PG-13 rating on today's sermon. Really what this word in the original language speaks of is one who is prone to sexual promiscuity. A lot of times this passage is taught as if Gomer were already a prostitute in the city. One who is selling herself out for services to men for money. That Some commentators think that she may have been a, a prostitute in the temple of Baal. That is an idol that kind of reigns prominent throughout the book of Hosea. But I think it might be better understood in this way. God was telling Hosea to marry Gomer, an ordinary woman, who would end up being unfaithful to him through sexual promiscuity so that it would be an example to the people of God of how their hearts are acting toward God as their covenant in their covenant relationship. I think the reason I say that is because the biblical evidence is not that she was already promiscuous about town. We don't have a ton of other evidence that says that. And so I want to be careful not to preach what Scripture doesn't actually say. It's where I want us to make sure that we don't approach these as a familiar story rather than a very practical truth for you and I today. We want to put aside other things that we've heard. We want to hear from God's word rightly. But in the midst of that, Hosea is a prophet. For him to marry a prostitute would have discredited his prophetic ministry. There would have been no way for him to minister in that way in the city. And yet here is the way that God is going to speak through him prophetically to his people. I think Hosea might have had some questions. Yet what is his posture? He's listening and obeying. It's an example for us today. Are you listening to the Lord's leading in everyday decisions? Now, I don't think that who you're going to marry is an everyday decision, but are you listening to the Lord when it comes to everyday decisions so that you are training yourself for when those bigger decisions come along, you know how to listen to the Lord? Because if you're saving, listening to the Lord for the big decisions of life, you are wasting critical aspects of your life that God may want to minister to you or through you. Let's not treat God as if He can only handle the big stuff, but we've got the rest of it. See, that's exactly what the people of Israel had begun to do. Don't sweat the small stuff, God. I've got that. God wants to be so intimately involved in our lives that he wants to be able to speak in to the small and the big aspects of our lives. Are we listening and posturing ourselves to be able to obey? Now perhaps there's a temptation to to hear this account or to read this account of real people at a a real point in time in a real location and begin the the eye rolls of another account where the woman is the issue. And if she just wasn't the way that she was, then nothing would have been wrong. And and maybe that temptation can even spill over into into the direction of thinking, well, this account, it's just using marriage as an illustration again. And I'm not married yet, so what can this be speaking to me, here we go with, with using marriage as the example again. And I'm not married. I don't have a family to be able to understand what it is that's in this passage. And I think that would be wrong ways to approach this passage. Let me, let me give you an example why. I think that we all, on a daily basis, utilize a mirror. We all utilize a mirror. I actually utilized one just before I stepped out of my office today. 
I was putting on my shirt, and I'm making sure, like, are all the buttons down? We utilize a mirror. It's something that's helpful until it's not. Because then you start to realize, like, okay, good, I just want to make sure buttons, are, you know, everything's buttoned up and, and in place, and then all of a sudden you're just like, where did that gray hair come from? Right, so all of a sudden, a mirror begins to not only expose something that is helpful, the mirror begins to expose things that we don't necessarily want to see either. But it's just reflecting something that's actually there. Why does the gray hair in my beard grow exponentially faster than any other aspect of my beard? I don't know. It's a mystery. Not necessarily of the gospel. It's a mystery of my face. It exposes things we don't want to see. And there are some of those that we can take care of on a surface level or cosmetically. And then there are the things that it exposes that are deep within, like when you catch your own eye in the mirror and you don't recognize the person looking back at you. Or you start to ask the question, I think we've all had this moment, how did I get here? How did it end up like this? See, when we read the the scripture, rather than front-loading all of our assumptions about scripture into it and thinking about all of these things that we might be bringing in from today and trying to read into that, what we want to do is we want to set those aside and we want to catch those moments where mirror scripture holds up to us as a mirror and it says these are the things that are good and these are the things that need to change. And we want to respond rightly to those moments. See, Hosea's relationship to Gomer is a mirror for each one of us individually here today. Man and woman, married or single, but what is it reflecting to us? What is their relationship reflecting to us? Well, it reflects God's passion for His people. As we'll read in just a moment, it reflects the sin of idolatry that can come out of our heart if we're involved in spiritual adultery. And you may think that that, that's such a strong phrase, spiritual adultery. Well, let's deal with the word that we have in our scripture. Many of your Bibles may say adultery. Uh, Many of your Bibles, uh, some of your Bibles may say whoredom. Some of your Bibles may use other phrases to describe what's going on there. But can we all acknowledge it's not good? So let's deal with the phrase here just a moment. I said it a moment ago, but broadly, this this term in Hebrew actually is talking about someone who is promiscuous sexually. And I think it's helpful for us to see Gomer as an ordinary woman that God was calling Hosea to marry, who would become unfaithful after her marriage to him. Well, how is it that that helps us today? What, What good is that supposed to do for us? Well... Perhaps you've felt the heartbreak of a child leaving your home, not on the terms you ever envisioned. Perhaps you've, you've experienced that pain. Maybe you've had someone be unfaithful to you. They've broken trust. They've broken maybe even just in friendships. If you've experienced that kind of pain or that kind of brokenness, then you have experienced just a smidgen, just a a small part of the hurting of the heart of God for the people that turn to idols instead of Him in this life. Through Hosea, through this book in our text today, God is showing us His passion for us. He's going after us. As a matter of fact, if you just look over Uh, To Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her tenderly. I will allure her. He is wooing. He is pursuing. He is going after his bride. That's what we're going to see in these first three chapters of Hosea. 
Now it uses some parallel ways that it sets up the text, and there are some technical aspects to what's being written here. But I want us to capture the broad theme so that we don't get caught up in the technical and miss what it is that God is after in our hearts by exposing us in some way to His. See, when it, when it goes beyond this mental ascent to things, I think it's what Shane was, was preaching about last week, where, where God wants to take the truths of his word and not just have them stored up here, rattling about as if life of the Christian is supposed to be this like real-life version of trivial pursuit. Oh, I know that Bible passage. I, I know the answer to this. No, he wants those truths pressed down into our hearts. Why? Because it displaces anything else that might take up residence there. See, Hosea is going to feel something on a temporary scale that God feels for us as his people on an eternal scale. Through Gomer, the mirror is reflecting ourselves back to us. Not our households or our marriages, ourselves as individuals. He's going to reveal our temptation to go away from the object and the object of our love and our covenant with God. We know this today to be Jesus Christ. But the desire to find alternative salves for a hurting soul is nothing new. What you and I experience in those moments where we are tempted to turn from Christ is nothing new in our hearts. The vice that we may be tempted to turn to, the sin that we gives our, give ourselves to, the longing of our own hearts to be loved and, and filled in a way that feels like it satisfies, they, they've resided there all along. You know, we all want to be loved. We all have that desire. We all want that sense of being pursued. You know, I think it's, it's here where we recognize how often we define our relationship with God through our experiences with human relationships. And how eternally dangerous that is. We all want to be pursued. I, I can remember for, for a few years our, some of our initial conflicts in marriage. Calling an audible here, babe. Were those conversations. I, I know this is not an unfamiliar conflict in a home. Hey, I remember when we used to go out together and we were friends and we, we just loved hanging out together and what happened to that after we got married? What, what happened with that? And, and I say that because I know it, it beca it's become a familiar refrain in our marriage and there's been growth, right? Okay. But it's not perfect. That's why we have Disney passes, because I'm terrible at date nights. It's where we go to get away and to be together. There's a spot in Epcot where we'll sit and just talk. We'll just sit there. We go there. It's, it's almost like we're on a beeline. Got to run by, grab some chips from England, get to our seat. Sit down and just talk. We're just far enough away from the responsibilities of home. But that was a gift that I gave her because I said, I'm, I'm, this is not just Disney passes. This is the gift of time together. We're not going to be entertained. We're going to make sure we stay married when our children finally leave our house. See, Stephanie wants to be pursued like that. I want to be pursued in ways. 
We all have that longing, and yet we have a God who is constantly pursuing us. What are we turning away from Him to? But it's dangerous when our earthly relationships define our heavenly relationship. Let me give you an example. There are times that people leave the church. I'm not offended by that. The most heartbreaking ones to me are when I hear something like, I didn't come for a few weeks and nobody reached out. Those break my heart. One, because I I know I'm a part of that. It's not my intention. It's not my desire. I know that's not anybody's desire here, but but it also becomes this strange self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes where it's like, well, I didn't really feel like I was connected to anybody there, so I just didn't show up for a while, and then when nobody reached out, I realized, you know, I'm not really connected to anybody there, and it's like, hang on, how, how does that logic work in real life? That feels like a real self-fulfilling prophecy because we all want to be pursued in some way. We want to have that feeling of someone longing for us. And can I tell you this? More than anybody on this earth, you have a God in heaven who sees you and longs to be in relationship with you. He invites you to, be, to abide in him, to make up home in him. The Psalms say that he is a, a refuge that you can take shelter in. He wants that kind of intimate relationship with you. And he's available to you. More than anybody in this church, more than anybody on your pew, more than anybody in your family or your friend group. More than anybody following you online. He's pursuing you, whether you feel it or not. Let's continue to read Hosea chapter 1 verse 4. Remember, Hosea has had a son with Gomer. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now we notice again that Hosea, from what we can tell, his obedience is immediate. His obedience is complete, no matter the pain that this may have brought his house. Now, you may think, what what pain would it bring to name your child Jezreel? What does that even mean? Well, the first child is said to be Hosea's, but if the spiritual complacency of the people was the real problem of the day, the real threat that they faced wasn't anything related to nations. So Jezreel as a place isn't something that we have to be worried about. Jezreel as a place where the judgment of the Lord was poured out, that might make us think a little bit differently about the name, right? So in other words, in their spiritual complacency, that was the issue that they were facing, but the threat was the judgment of the Lord against their complacency. And and Jezreel as the name that is given by Hosea means judgment, scatter, bloodshed. I don't know about you. Stephanie and I talked a lot about our kids' names. This never made the list. You ever seen those lists online, top 50 names of 2022? I mean, they exist out there. What what are the top 50 kids' names of 2022? I bet Jezreel's not on that list. Judgment. Have I introduced you to my son, Judgment? <laughs> Whoa, I'm not letting my kids play with him. See, the, the children born to Hosea and to Gomer are given symbolic names, but they're pointing to something about the heart of God toward the sin of the people. And this is where judgment can be one of those messages that's very difficult It's easy to to try to move on as quickly as possible. It's it's easy to just kind of say like, and the judgment of the Lord stands against those who stand against Him. But there's grace. But we need to remember that our sin comes with a great price. Our sin was paid for with a terrible cost. 
Those moments, let's not be flippant in the moments of spiritual adultery. It costs dearly to pay for that. There is a judgment, a holy and righteous sitting on the throne above the heavens, judgment proclaimed against our sin. Let us take it seriously. In the midst of considering this name of judgment, we realize how serious our sin is. We begin to understand that in God's holiness, there's no room for spiritual adultery. There's no moment that He doesn't want to be the one who ministers to us perfectly. There's no moment where He doesn't want to be the one that supplies all of our needs. There's no place for another idol of other gods creeping in, trying to take up space. Let's just consider for a moment subtle ways that idols can can kind of try to creep into our heart. Spiritual adultery might seep in to our heart. How about this? The idea that no matter what you believe doesn't, doesn't really matter. This is a form of spiritual adultery. The idea that what you believe doesn't really matter because all of the great religions of the world really seem to agree on the essentials. That's a form of spiritual adultery. It makes thousands of podcasts today. But it does not make a right relationship with God. Many people trying to posit these ideas of wholeness and happiness and coexistence and all of these other things... It might make for interesting marketing materials. It might make for top lists on podcasting apps. And I say that because I know it's there. But it does not make a right relationship and a covenant relationship with God that is not a form of spiritual adultery. So let's be on guard for those things. What about this subtle form of idolatry of spiritual adultery? The the idea of corrupted or diluted varieties of Christianity that are abundant throughout our own nation, throughout our world. See, we're very good at worshiping a God that we make up, a God that is convenient to us, and He happens to fit with our desires. He happens to agree with our choices in life. That's a form of spiritual adultery. If the God you serve agrees with everything that you do, check the God you serve. What about superficial forms of what would be called pantheism, where you just have all of these gods? All of these gods, they they kind of come together and they just become this one way through these many little gods. No, 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 the scripture is going to speak very clearly to that. But you know where this shows up? Upscale spas, yoga classes, different places like that where we are very good at treating ourselves and treating our bodies as if we are the god. I'm not telling you not to take care of your temple. I'm telling you not to make it an idol. Let's be on the watch for these subtle forms of spiritual adultery. You know, we can create hundreds of counterfeit gods. Idols that promise us freedom, but in reality they, they enslave us. They ensnare us. They demean us. Think about just a few. What about if you were to worship at the idol of sex, it will corrode your ability to love and be loved. And think about how easy it is to worship at the idol of sex in secret and nobody in this place know about it. What about worshiping at the altar of alcohol and becoming ensnared Where there's this chemical change that happens because you need that drink. What if you worship at the altar of money? What happens? You become consumed by greed. What if you were to to say, well, I just worship at the altar of my family. That seems right. God created the family and He gave me a family. He gave me a role in that so that I would play. Well, if you worship at the altar of your family, you or they, one, are going to collapse under the weight of expectations. 
I've seen it happen. Because there is a burden of unfulfilled expectations that can be devastating to generations of families. Even the good things distorted become idols. If you worship at the altar of any substitute God, you will ultimately find that it cannot satisfy. It can't satisfy. You know, as I, I, I've been preparing and, and this morning, just kind of reviewing notes and, and devotion before coming in, I was reminded of this hymn that is now sung by Keith and Kristen Getty. It, it, the title of the hymn is, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And it just simply says this. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Greatest treasure wellspring of my soul and I will trust in him no other my soul is satisfied in him alone as summer flowers we fade and die fame youth and beauty hurry by but life eternal calls to us at the cross I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light. But I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. You know, if you've, if you've become increasingly entangled with idols by worshiping at their altar, you know, it, it, there's something that accompanies that. An erosion of your faith in the things of God. An erosion of your faith in the things of God. And, and perhaps that's part of what you're experiencing. For example, you may be experiencing by worshiping at the altar of other gods, you may be experiencing a thought that the Bible is not the unerring word of God. That the Bible is not enough for what you're walking through in life. And so now you're not just worshiping at the idol of, of that lowercase God, you are making yourself a God that says, this is not enough for me. Oh, do you hear the arrogance of that? An erosion that this is enough for you, that Christ would be enough for you. Perhaps that's part of the undermining, not this idea that Jesus of Nazareth is his himself, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, the, re the resurrected Lord, and the ascending King, and someday the returning Christ. If, if there are things about what I just said that you just say, I don't know about that, you may be worshiping at the altar of another God. Because all of those things are true. And even as we heard in worship today, they are an anchor for our souls in those dark moments that we will face in life. So what we're reading in the book of Hosea, even at the naming of a child, judgment is an act of grace. And you may say, well, what an unsettling act of grace. Yes, but it's an act of grace nonetheless. Acts 17.30 commands all people everywhere to repent to turn from their little idols and to worship the God, the one true God, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father, and the judge. Now, our, our passage today references breaking the bow. Not only is there the name of judgment, but there's this reference to breaking the bow. And it's, it's really a poetic way of speaking of defeat. But this is speaking of defeat of the people of God. And you may say, well, how, how do you know that that means defeat? Well, Psalm 46, 8 through 11 kind of help us understand this. It says, come behold the works of our Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. What is that? Well, that is victory. That is victory. But he is saying that there will be a victory over the people of Israel as he breaks the bow. And all of this points to a future salvation 
Not only salvation for us today that our lives are held secure, but a salvation for the people of God that he will hold for the latter days. Let's continue to read this morning as we make our way through Hosea 1. Let's begin in verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to, her, call, said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will, ha- I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, the first child is said to be Hosea's. These children are not said to be Hosea's. It seems as if these children may have been born through her sexual promiscuity. They may have, uh, she may have conceived these children in her promiscuity. But one of them is named No Mercy. As a child playing basketball in the 90s, I remember No Mercy, No Fear, No Mercy. It was like this trash-talking thing that we wore on the basketball court. Look it up. There's a great And One documentary. It talks about... I don't know that... Never mind. No mercy is not trash talk from the Lord. Throughout Scripture, we see that it is His love that pours forth freely toward us as His people. But His wrath is restrained. What is that? That is mercy. It's mercy because we deserve judgment and yet we don't receive it because His wrath is restrained. Mercy, saying no mercy to the people of God is not God trash-talking His people. It is Him trying to wake them up and shake them out of spiritual adultery. There will come a day when the obstinate will stand, those who don't want to hear the word of the Lord, and they will stand in His presence And he will not show them mercy. This is another reminder of the judgment of God. I mean, the hits kind of seem to keep on coming. Remember that, that God is still, I believe, providentially guiding Israel as his people, but they are no longer enjoying his mercies as before. I mean that not only from a biblical standpoint, but I think we see that geopolitically as well. And so there are things that we can even see today where the Lord has withdrawn His mercy from them as a people, even as He continues to providentially guide them. And just when you think that the meaning of the names can't get any more bleak, our passage today says that by the time that no mercy is weaned, the hits just keep coming. There's low amai. Not my people. Hosea walks out, showing off his his new son. Let me introduce you to not my people. I mean, this seems like the opposite of what we've heard God say, even in Exodus. You shall be my people and I shall be your God. And yet here God seems to be withdrawing that. And he's showing us that in covenant relationship with him, that is a part of the curses that come from being spiritually promiscuous. Looking and turning to other things other than God. I mean, the refrain that you shall be my God and I shall be your people is at the very heart of the story of Scripture. What in the world is going on that Hosea would have anything in his life that tries to to, to communicate that there's a withdrawal of that? That seems like God is breaking his own covenant. How does that work? He's not at all doing that. See, his presence wouldn't be with them anymore to be what uniquely identifies them as his. They're going to be isolated and alone in this pagan land without hope. 
We'll see a little bit more about this in the weeks ahead, but for now, we should realize that God is calling out and pursuing his people before it becomes too late, and in their relationship with him and with one another, God wanted to shake his people out of their spiritual infidelity before it was too late. Some of us here know this in terms of physical infidelity. We know moments where God has intervened so that adultery does not move forward. And then there are marriages here today that know the moment that we ignore those warning signs and we just barrel toward what we think in that moment and spiritual adultery happens. And what does everybody say? Everybody in my office says this in those moments, in those tearful, hurtful, angry moments in my office. If I could go back. And God is saying, don't have that moment of regret Don't have that moment of regret where you ignore the warning signs that I've laid out before you. And I've laid out for you what it is that will be the punishment that comes for spiritual adultery. Don't look back and have regret that you did not listen and heed the warning. That's what God is calling to you and to me today. Don't look back with regret at ignoring those moments. Now let me pause here for a moment, even as we begin to draw to a close. Perhaps today it's easier for you to identify as one who is unloved rather than loved. So when I talk about this judgment, you just think, yeah, I deserve that. When I talk about No mercy, you just think, yeah, that sounds right. When I talk about not my people, you just say, yeah, yeah, okay, that that sounds right. I feel isolated, ostracized. Can we hear these words as we close out our chapter today and let them bring encouragement to our souls? Yet the number, Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. There is a day of judgment coming. A day that many should dread and few give thought to. It's a day that we should be aware of and paying attention to in the church because it should inform our mission to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many as we can. It's a day that we should look at and realize that we should be the ones not receiving mercy and yet on that day mercy will be declared over us in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is ending with today. So if it seemed a little heavy-handed up to this point, talking about no mercy and judgment and not my people, can we just actually acknowledge all of those are not pointing to us if we are in Jesus Christ? Because all of that has been directed to Him. You see, the name Hosea has significant meaning as well. It's not like judgment. It's not like no mercy. It's not like not my people. It means something radically different. It it actually uses the same verb as the name Joshua and Jesus. Meaning to save, to deliver. You see, God could have come out with a warning. He could have made his message clear through Hosea simply preaching sermons, but he went even further than that. He embodied his message in the children of Hosea. And he embodies his salvation in Jesus Christ. It's what we celebrate in just a few months with the Christmas season. The embodiment of salvation. Look at the connections that Hosea make to the cross. See, our closing verses today remind us that there will be a remnant who will remain God's people and they will be restored. There is a a renewal of the covenant that we can look forward to in Jesus Christ. 
There will be a reconciliation of divisions that exist in the brokenness of our world today. And those who are called not my people will be gathered together as those who have been rescued and redeemed and reclaimed as his very own. So for you who feel like you can't identify with people around you, Christ wants to shed, say through his shed blood he has rescued you so that you can be known as his. And you can be brought into fellowship with other believers. For those who here today feel undeserving or unworthy of mercy, can I say this, and I want to articulate this well, there are so many of us that identify more with un than within. And what do I mean by that? Unworthy, undeserving, in Christ. I am unworthy as of myself, but in Christ... I can go about my day and have a purpose. Left to ourselves, we are unworthy. But in Christ, we are invited to receive mercy freely. For those who today know the depths of the judgment that you deserve, know that Christ took the pain and the punishment on your behalf. Not so that you could seek other means of satisfaction, in the days between our being called by his name and his return. No, you have received that mercy so that you can turn to him, so that he can become more beautiful to you, so that you can know the depths of his work, so that you can know the depths of his love, so that you can live out of the good that he has provided for us. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 very simply puts it like this when we ask the question, what is the restoration for our heart? What is it that we should do if we found ourselves kind of flirting with other idols, moving toward them, looking away from Christ? It says this very simply, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. As you identify the idols of your own heart that you're prone to worship, set them aside so that the creator and sustainer of all things can be all things to you. He is God. They are not. He can save, and they cannot. Turn again from them, and in repentance, turn to him. Can we just take a moment in quiet reflection together as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts? I'm going to lead us in an a cappella hymn just coming out of that in just a moment. Holy Spirit, we invite you to reveal any idols that we've been turning to. Any vice, any pleasure that we have put out of order any person that we have put in the place of you. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, name of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, Wandering from the fold of God, 
He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts. Uh, church, can we stand together? Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Father, those areas of our heart that we have not surrendered over to you, that we have hidden away for idols. Those areas of our hearts where we have, we have bought into the lie, God's not enough for that. Lord, we repent and we cry out for your forgiveness. Lord, there's a name that we want to speak above all other names, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, because in him is the embodiment of receiving the wrath that we deserve, receiving the judgment that would be poured out on him that was restrained on our behalf. Why would we look to anyone else? Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us for those moments of doubt. Holy Spirit, help us in those moments. Empower us to look to Christ. May he be our all in all. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for speaking to the deepest needs in our heart and satisfying them not with other things in this world that would clutter our mind as if we have to be spiritual hoarders. meeting those deep needs with yourself. Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus as more beautiful and more powerful than our own longings and desires. In Jesus' name, amen.